Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is Andrew Barra. Andrew, how are you? I'm good, Tom. How are you? Excellent. Hey, listen, can you tell us, uh, well, me and the listeners, about your background, uh, what you're currently doing, and what's led you into a career in safety? Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably the most interesting and shocking fact about me is that I have six kids. Uh, most people lose the filter between their brain and their mouth when they find that out for someone of my age. Um, and so I'll give you all of the answers that people sometimes ask uh, without fear uh, or sometimes are thinking uh, they're all my kids. Uh, they're pretty close together, 10 year span between them. Uh, we had intended to have a big family, but I always say to people just have one kid at a time. And I um, have absolutely nothing uh, new or additional or expert to offer anyone else be just because I've got um, six kids. So that's probably uh, an important part about me. Uh, love my family, live in a beautiful part of regional South Australia, grew up in Sydney in the suburbs. Um, and I've been a health and safety professional for my entire full-time working career. Studied it at university. Dad said uh, that it would be a uh, a job for life, given the direction that he saw regulations and whatnot going as a, as an executive working in government. And um, I've expanded my practice across uh, both consulting work, uh, which gives you breadth across lots of different industries and lots of different project types, uh, as in as in types of work. And um, and then also worked in in-house roles, which gives you that depth and and in particular that experience of the uh, the slow, patient, sometimes painful and frustrating process of change, which is critically important in health and safety. Um, I uh, have been doing this for about uh, fourteen years or so, although the numbers aren't particularly important to me. Um, what's more relevant though is is that um, in the, in the early part of my career. I started to reflect on whether or not the things that I were doing in the name of health and safety actually uh, made sense. 
and so that created a bit of a uh, bit of a black hole uh, where, where a bit of depression um, and anxiety set in about my professional role and my purpose in life and my contribution and whether or not I was actually truly helping people, which is what I think health and safety is about. Um, and that kind of led me on a path to, I suppose, in some way, become a bit reformed. I, I use that as a bit of a joke to say I'm a reformed health and safety professional. There's no 10-step program for that yet. But, um, but certainly it's been a journey of reflection um, and deep introspection about what is it that we should be doing um, when we say that we work in health and safety. And that's led me to running uh, my own business at the moment, um, which is uh, centered around the brand Safety on Tap with a podcast, um, as some of your listeners might have heard of, and a bunch of development support and growth services, mostly for health and safety professionals. Excellent, excellent. What part of Sydney was it you, you grew up in? Southwest Sydney. So Padstow is where mum and dad are and my brother and sister are still there. We bought our first house in Rose, um, in um, Wattle Grove, which is near Rose, uh, Holsworthy uh, Army Base. Yeah, no, I, I I spent the first 13 years of my life in a lovely place called Lidcombe, West West Sydney. Oh, right. Oh, that's not uh, too far. Yeah. Um, I think I think you guys were in a better, slightly better area than we were at the time, but uh, well, I went to uh, school in Bankstown, so oh, I, it's I, not too far away. Not too far away. Right. There you go. Yeah. All right. Um, you talked about perhaps being a slightly disillusioned safety um, safety advisor, person who's actually talking safety. Yeah. A lot of safety advisors end up slightly cynical, a slightly disillusioned about. Uh, the advice they're giving and the benefits that they're actually making to the workplace. What do you reckon that is? Well, because it's hard. So so I think this is the first thing that it's easy. Uh, I think it's easy for lots of different people, including ourselves, to kind of throw stones at safety professionals and safety work. Um, so if we go back to the core purpose of it, which is that it's about actually um, ensuring that people go home at least as good, if not better, than when they left, both in terms of their safety and their health. Then that that's quite a noble that's quite a noble goal. The the problem, the frustration, and the negativity comes from the way that we go about doing that work. And so, um, I certainly experienced uh, the problems associated with doing things that people said, "Well, this would be good for safety." So, for example, many aspects of implementing a safety management system, which uh, get lost. That, that the the process becomes the goal and we lose sight of the overall goal. And so at that point in time, we diverge from our intent, if you like, our noble intent, um, and, and that's where a lot of frustration lies. And, and unfortunately, lots of health and safety professionals um, are put into contexts, and what I mean by that is businesses where senior managers have certain expectations, existing safety management systems, certification schemes or expectations from clients that are driven, you know, into the organisation, um, managers who have done things a certain way for a long time, certainly the behaviour of regulators drives us towards things that on the surface are in the name of safety, but they just don't make a lot of sense. Uh, and we can talk about lots of different examples of that in terms of, you know, proceduralization of things or control of people or uh, hindsight and blame when things go wrong um, in terms of saying that safety is workers' expectations and yet the design uh, and the supply of equipment of work in work uh, are often the things that really determine safety. So I, I think in some sense we are a little bit shielded or at least blinkered 
to the bigger picture of health and safety. And, and that's certainly not anyone's fault, but, but it's a very wicked kind of problem in a profession such as ours. Yeah. Andrew, um, because you've been involved in safety and giving advice for, for, for quite a while, in fact, your whole, literally your whole adult life after university, yeah. I'm going to ask you a question, which is, it, it, it sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be asking you to explain something pretty simple, but yeah. a lot of people don't understand the concept properly. So you, you talked about safety management systems. Yeah. Can you just explain to the average Joe and Joanne what a safety management system is? Because it, from my speaking to to ordinary workers, is there's a lot. It, it, it's this great mystical idea, but no one actually knows what the hell it is. Yep, yep. So I think a safety management system is a, a large, often cumbersome, and somewhat theatrical performance about safety, which is not the same as safety. So in the way that a theatrical performance is designed to reflect some, some aspect of real life, I think in many ways a safety management system is, is a performance of that real life. It's not the real life. And when I say real life, I mean the work, the work that's actually done. Yep. So safety management systems become policies and procedures and rules and programs and guidelines and uh, safe work methods and, and all that sort of stuff that are designed to approximate and then communicate to other people who don't do the work what's actually going on um but but it's yeah it's it's a theatrical performance in in many respects good um something i heard is uh, that they can end up uh promoting you know we have these acronyms in safety we have ltis and etc like that um but they said uh safety management systems can end up promoting a, a, a something called an lgi a looking good index it's the, <laughs> It, it's there to convince regulators and shareholders that we're actually serious about safety, but it actually does nothing to improve the safety on site for the people at the front line, the workers. Well, I'm, I, first of all, uh, I love that. I love that acronym. I haven't heard of that before, and it certainly resonates with my experience. I will um, maybe just counter one of the things that you said, though, Tom, which is that the safety management system doesn't actually contribute anything valuable um safety management systems well designed well executed well monitored or or, or evaluated um are critical to the safety of work so 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 um i think it's really important to make sure that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater that poor execution of safety management systems um is the problem not the safety management system concept itself mm. and there's lots of good evidence for that in the literature about um critical risk um, even when, say, people talk about checklists, for example, mm. uh, which often become a, 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 an example of forms of safety clutter, um, I guarantee you that when I get on the plane later today to go to Melbourne for work, that um, the pilot will be going through a checklist and that checklist is critical to make sure that that flight is safe. Yeah. And so, so that's particularly important. Um, we just need to make sure that we're staying focused on what is it trying to achieve? And if it's not achieving it, then changing it. And, yeah. and that seems to be the difficult bit with it. The looking good part, though, is very legit. And so there's great research that was done by uh, Drew Ray and David Proven at Griffith University talking about the difference between the safety of work, which is operational safety, and yes. safety work, which yes. includes things like demonstrated safety. So how do we show or put on this theatrical performance for others that we're safe? Yeah, um, yeah. And in some sense, that's necessary in supply chains and contractual arrangements and whatnot. But... 
um, when those things don't reflect the safety of work, then we've kind of got a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned checklists, and, and yeah, they are vital. I, I, I love a well-structured checklist, but with a few conditions, a few provisos. I usually find when I'm actually teaching people, as I say to them, when you do inspections of your workplace and things like that, uh, when, you, when you're doing that and you're doing a hazard hunt or you're checking your, your environment before you start, pre-start checklist and that, I say, uh, do you actually know who created the checklist? And no one knows. No one knows. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say, so the things that are on a checklist, you're assuming that the person who wrote the checklist knew what the inherent hazards were yep. about the process or the procedure or the, your area or the piece of equipment you're working with, yep. but no one knows. And it, yep. it's just like, okay, well, wouldn't you want to know that the person who wrote the checklist that you're using religiously actually knew what they were talking about? Yeah. And the other thing I find with some checklists is they don't actually give room for people to find additional hazards or new hazards. And so it's basically, it's blinkering the person to look for hazards that are on a checklist, but not look for anything else. And um, I like a good checklist. As you said, I think they're vital, but I think you do have to um, realise they have their own limitations um, yeah. at times. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think you're highlighting some of the nuances here that I was kind of referring to in in staying focused on what is what is it trying to do. So so mm. I did a podcast episode called What's It For? And all it did was uh, it was kind of a reflection on us stopping and thinking about whatever we're doing uh, in, our, in our work or creating something in a safety management system, asking what's it for and the way to evaluate whether it's useful or not, is it doing the thing that we thought it was for? So is a checklist for hazard identification or risk control verification? Or is it an independent review from the people who are doing the work because we need a second line of defense uh, because of the, the nature of the, you know, the significant risks involved? Um, is it uh, something to do with quality uh, or is it something to do with safety? So I, I think you're right. The the problem with checklists often is, is that um, the we lose the resolution on the detail. So the, the who came up with it, I think, is a great question. A lot of a lot of things are created and forced upon workers, people who do the work by people who don't understand the work. So already we've got a disconnect there. The creation of things together with the people who do the work is a is a, a very powerful and it's not a complica complicated way to create good safety processes like checklists. Mm -hmm. um, but we also need to acknowledge that the people who do the work sometimes don't have all the knowledge. So if you think about process safety, for example, in an oil and gas plant or mm -hmm. um, in a large uh, mine processing facility, then... Um, in those situations, often you do need the experts to be saying, hey, you're not going to know about the particular gases or vapours or um, explosion risks or whatever that are here for the workers. And so then you need to bring together the right stakeholders to create it. Now, the cool bit about when you go through a co-creative process is that you don't just get the checklist as an outcome, you actually get better risk management because you get people to wrestle with the hazards and the controls. And then you also get education in the process because you get uh, the people who do the work to learn from the experts and the experts get to learn about the real work. The whole process gets stronger if you do it like that. 
but yeah. unfortunately I'm describing something that is more aspirational rather than day to day most of the time in in organizations true true it it it, it it's very goal orientated but um I go back uh, and this this sounds very much like the involvement of learning teams to help you know understand the way work is done in reality I don't think that's actually a, a particularly new concept I, I i go back to you know the simple thing that i understand which is the law and the law says you know you must consult with workers about various things at various times and to me the development of you know identification and management of hazards and risks in your workplace that's the fundamental about consultation that's what it's actually intended to be yep. so i i don't think it's actually I mean, a lot of people think that's a new thing and, and going, oh, my God, this is wonderful, getting your workers involved in doing mm-hmm. these things. But it's what we're supposed to have been doing for the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I agree. And it's funny. Um, I was at a conference presentation not long ago. Uh, sorry, a conference I spoke at. One of the earlier speakers was saying that the new views of safety, which include things like learning teams and thinking of workers as the solution, not the problem and whatnot, that, um, that that's actually not that new because mm-hmm. it is reflected in legislation that is in some cases 30 or 40 years old. Um, so um, I agree with you that it's not that new. And I thought I, I'm just going to pull up an email that I sent to someone. So there's an organisation I'm working with at the moment who are looking to develop better learning practices. They're based in the UK. And and I actually, they're putting together some papers for their management team to talk about this new learning approach that they're taking. And, um, and one of the things that I pulled out from some of my research, um, because I hadn't read it before I did my recent research on organisational learning, was from um, the Robins Report in 1972, which is effectively the, uh, the parliamentary report that was done by Lord Robins that started the shaping of modern health and safety legislation um, in most Commonwealth countries, um, and uh, or developed Commonwealth countries, I should say. And, and I just thought I'd read this quote for you because it really picks it up. Um, So Robin says, we regard the question of worker involvement as quite central to this inquiry and the main themes of our report. So the words are the main themes of our report. So the quote continues, the submissions we made revealed that whilst there is general agreement on the value of joint consultation on safety, there are doubts about extensive legal intervention in this regard. I'll skip along a bit. It talks about safety reps and committees. Uh, This view has widespread support from many bodies and organisations. and so, so there's this idea that Robins in 1972 said the central idea of safety should be the participation of workers. And that's different from consultation. So you'll note the word consultation is the one we're familiar with. Participation is a different thing. So you're exactly right. That concepts of getting workers involved and understanding normal work and uh, doing things collaboratively are not new. The problem is, is that we have lost the essence of the intent of those parts of the legislation. So you know how I said before that we, we have good intentions about safety and we diverge from that in, in our in our work? That's exactly what's happening with this. So we need to then, well, this is my theory, we then latch on to new philosophies and ideas and practices like learning teams, which is certainly not the only way to go about doing this. Um, and we latch onto them because the existing ways of working, the existing forms of committees and reps and things like that aren't giving us the forms of worker participation that Robins wanted to see in 1972. So 
I think to be to in some sense, Tom, we've made a lot of progress since 1972, and man, we've got a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree entirely. I can tell you now. Um, I t- I teach health and safety representatives literally most well, a couple of times at least a month. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you when you talk to them and you talk to people in in and say. You know, did you go about election? How many people were involved? How many people want to be involved? And it's usually one person. They were the only person who put their hand up, which is quite, I don't know, it's quite discouraging because you'd think people would want to actually take control of their own health and safety. You'd think that they'd want to actually represent their people and ensure they go home. But I don't see, and I've been training it for eight years. Wow. I don't see there's been a great shift of people going, hey, wow, this is important. This is an important yeah. value to me. Let's take it on. Yeah. Um, let's learn something new to help keep us safe. It, it's it's To me, it's a little bit frustrating. But- oh, no, I agree. I agree. And it's interesting, though, again, looking at that situation, we've got to, if you take an organisational learning mindset to it, you can ask questions like, well, why does it make sense? Or in what ways would it make sense for that reality to be the case? So um, some of the hunches that I've got from some of my research and experience is that um, one of the reasons why um, you only get one person put their hand up is because it's not attractive. Mm. And so we should not assume that people, you know, the people who do the work, that their health and they don't think their health and safety is important, that the idea of engaging in the process of representation is not attractive. Now, why would it not be attractive? Well, because it usually attracts the noisy people and the ones who truly aren't representative of others. Um, it uh, It's often a fight. It's a tooth and claw fight against management in some organisations. So that's not particularly attractive. Um, and sometimes you'll have u- union involvement, which adds a, another layer of complexity as well. So I, I think there's lots of reasons where we can look at it and say, well, I, th- I think it makes sense why it's like that at the moment. So instead of trying to fix the training or fix the workers' motivation to be involved in participation, what if we actually look at other parts of that dynamic or that that system, if you like, little s, that's, that's happening? So, you know, and I use this example or this contrast. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST learning teams where when we set up learning teams which is based in an organizational learning frame you know i say to people um how often have you had anyone in your organization come to you after an incident investigation like who've participated in an incident investigation and said hey that was a great experience 
Um, I would love to be part of the next one. Can you let me know when that's on? Total numbers. Like zero. I said, no workout <laughs> ever. And yet that's what happens with well-planned, well-executed, well-embedded learning teams. Mm. So again, what's happening here? The learning team itself is part of it. But the other part is that it's couched in um, a context in which it makes it appealing. So we treat workers genuinely with respect. Uh, we allow them without fear to share the realities of their work, even when that work is non-compliant or, or, or dangerous, you know, because that's what we want to understand. Um, we make sure that we have senior leaders on board who are genuinely committed to providing those resources. Because remember, for a lot of workers, they don't have the autonomy to say, hey, yeah, I'm just going to take half a day off to go and do this training or this meeting, you know, the safety committee meeting. Now, I know legally that's the requirement, but practically that often doesn't happen. So when you set up the conditions for good learning, it does look, smell and taste different from other forms of participation in safety. And so I suppose that's been my experience, which is that we have to understand what's happening with low participation or engagement. And we have to, I suppose, tweak other parts of the big picture in order to try and to try and change that. Good. All right. Um, you've been involved in safety for a long time. What What's been the biggest challenge you've faced in trying to promote and encourage safety in the workplace? Uh, patience, probably, is, I mean, there's no shortage of, of, uh, of challenges, um, but, but I think patience is probably the, the biggest one. So um, when I, my, my first full-time role out of uni was working in consulting because I wanted that breadth of experience. And then I left consulting because I was so desperate for the depth of experience that I want to, I want to dig in and be part of a longer term change. And, and that was an eye opening experience for me that, um, that change is a really complex um, and, and often slow process. So patience is important. Now that doesn't mean that change can't be swift. And I've been involved in some, phenomenal ambitious like lightning fast change but the, the patience that's required is that you you've got to have a very clear plan about how you want to go about change or how you want to approach the change I should say um, and then you have to have the patience to let it play out to listen to the feedback that's coming not just from people but from whatever it is that you're trying so your, your example of health and safety elections that have no uh, you know, not many people putting their hands up. That's a form of feedback, which means that your consultation process isn't working. So your your approach to change there needs to adapt, needs to flex. So you need a, a level of patience that, um, yeah, you've got to wait for feedback. You've got to see how things play out. Um, and you've also got to be prepared to um, let go of the plan that you started with because uh, the only thing that changes in change is change. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes we get a little bit stuck in this idea that we had a plan to begin with, say, you know, a, a safety management system implementation plan or a, uh, a three-year strategy or something like that for safety and that we just kind of stick blindly to it. Um, we, we need we need the patience to be able to listen to what's going on and, and to change it um, kind of flexibly. All right. Um, in the today's environment modern day environment where most businesses in australia are finding higher costs after covid uh, but also 
strong staff shortages, greater demands for providing flexible workplaces for their employees, only if yep. they want to keep their employees. Okay. <laughs> How do you go about convincing a small or medium business owner that they need to invest more resources into providing a safer workplace for their people? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, um, I, when I left my full-time safety work um, and I, and I started a business, I, um, what's the word? I, I didn't know exactly which direction I was going to go. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of did a bit of a risk assessment on my career. And I said, well, where's the biggest impact going to be? Mm-hmm. And so there were two key kind of targets that came out of that. One was small and medium business in general, which is not very specific. Um, mm-hmm. And the other was um, in agriculture. Yep. And so I ha- have had a very, very good tilt at both of those spaces. Um, now, what I've found in um, the small and medium business space is that um, the things that work for larger businesses don't adapt very well to smaller businesses. So, you know, the the concept of safety management systems and uh, approaches to training and that sort of stuff don't work for a lot of small and medium businesses. So it needs a lot of retooling and rethinking. That was one part. Um, the other is that um, you can actually take an approach to consulting with small and medium businesses, which is action-focused rather than artifact-focused. So what that means is you engage the key stakeholders and the good bit is in most small and medium businesses that there's only one or two or three or maybe five, I don't know, um, people that you need to be able to engage with. And you can, you can talk with them. You can sit with them. You can understand the way that they look at the world. So I'll give you an example of one organization that had great success with a small distribution firm, um, a specialty distribution firm. And they had two directors both working in the business. One was uh, the kind of head of operations and the other was the head of sales and marketing. The head of operations said, I want to make sure we've got a good, solid operation and I want to look after my people. I'm like, great. Uh, and these are in separate conversations. And the other said, I want you to cover my ass and keep me out of jail. Now, even just in that little example, you've got two directors whose goals are not incompatible, but are very, very different in terms of the way you would go about, um, you know, thinking about and, you know, doing things in the name of health and safety. So all I did then was I was able to help them shape together in the one business, two directors, one business, um, an approach which made sure that what we were doing made sense to them. And it was all basic stuff. It was understanding the concepts of risk management and critical risk, understanding their due diligence duties and the general duty of care, um, and risk control implementation was the key focus and doing that engaging with their workers. So it wasn't particularly complicated, but understanding the perspective that those directors took, I found was a, a pretty critical approach. Good, good. Uh, you've mentioned, and well, you've mentioned safety on tap. Uh, did my little research beforehand. To me, it's uh, I, I think it's one of the longest running safety podcasts in Australia. It's been going for six years plus. Yeah, I so, think it is the longest, yeah. yeah. Yeah, congratulations on that. Thank you. But how did you get the idea? And for those who haven't had the pleasure of listening to it, what's the purpose of it? So Safety on Tap was, I suppose, me scratching my own itch. So as a health and safety professional, I was reflecting on 
uh, the challenges that I had um, in particular early in my career. And this is not to the exclusion of great managers and great supportive teams around me. But I really kind of thought, well, what am I missing here? I'm missing a form of professional development that helps me broaden my thinking, gives me different perspectives, and ultimately helps me grow and improve. And so um, I was looking for that and I didn't find it. And so uh, a good friend of mine uh, and former podcaster himself, Mark Stipik, um, said to me, you know what, you, you need to you need to start a podcast. And I said, I don't know what this podcast is going to be about. And he said, well, you'll figure it out. Just get started. And so I have the original piece of paper where I scribbled the mission, which is that Safety on Tap is for leaders who want to grow themselves and to drastically improve health and safety along the way. So that's important. We grow professionally, and through that growth, we improve ourselves and we improve health and safety outcomes. And so that's kind of the, the mission, I suppose, that started me, uh, you know, seeking out guests and conversations to have. And I love dialogue. Like you learn so much in dialogue with people, unplanned, kind of like what we're having. We had a rough direction we were going, but we're just seeing where it goes. And um, and I thought, well, what better way to share these conversations with other people then? And and then sharing some of my own reflections as I learned and and grew in the process and, and then adapting it to do things like... Um, when I realized just how much I was learning out of the coaching work that I do with health and safety leaders and teams, I then realized that I needed to start to find a way to inject that, to share that with other people, because, you know, it's great for one or a handful of people to have amazing insights through coaching, but why can't I bring that to, you know, uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people across the globe. So that's, um, that's a bit about safety on tap. And I had a bit of a break after episode 200, which was earlier this year, uh, to do with uh, a couple of different things that I had going on. Um, and uh, episode 200 is probably a good one if, if someone wants to listen to that because it's a bit of a, uh, a, a journey in review where I had lots of friends of the podcast on, uh, including Mark Stipik, who was the original um, uh, nudge that I had to start it, and, um, and also hearing from listeners who have actually benefited from, from being part of the Safety on Tap community. And I suppose that, that's been an awesome thing to hear that, you put something out into the world and the world the world appreciates it and yeah, no, that's great and 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 thank you for actually doing that it, i'm oh, it it's helped me and i'm sure it's helped a lot of other people um yeah 200 episodes i might i think you deserve a break after that. i mean <laughs> let's not forget you've got six kids i mean your time management skills must be kind of mega awesome uh yeah with time management and stress levels high you know but <laughs> <laughs> all right now a little background for people Andrew actually, when I when I said to him, "Hey, let's come on," he actually put put something back to me and said, "Ask me the most difficult question that you can think of about in safety, and ask ask it to me." And yeah. I, that that that's a bit interesting because to me, I I've got quite a few I don't know uh, bugbears in uh, yeah. the way that safety happens. But I thought about it and went, "All right." This is it. And I'm surprising Andrew with it. So if he has that surprise look on his face, don't be surprised. Amazing. No, this is this is genuine life. <laughs> All right. Here's my bugbear. Here's the question. Yeah. Why in 2022, when we are so knowledgeable and we know what fundamentally works yeah. to help make and create safety, safer work environments to people, why in the safety industry? And why in management and workplaces are we still looking for people to blame for 
incidents and accidents and the environment we work in. We've got the traditionalists that blame the worker. We've got people which move into the new age who might shift the blame to management or the system. But we seem to still, if you follow the conversations on LinkedIn between safety professionals, yeah, there is still hot debate about blaming someone mm-hmm. or something. And it's just, it, it, it frustrates the hell out of me because we spend so much time and energy fighting our own people and, and the message we're giving to business owners who can make an influence change in the workplace is muddled, confused, and it's yeah, it's it's hard for someone to make sense of it if they don't understand the basic principles. And I think yeah. I don't know. I, I it frustrates me. What do you think no, we I- keep doing this? Oh, you know what? I appreciate your question, Tom, and I also appreciate your uh, your, your vulnerability in sharing that. I can hear your frustration in uh, in asking the question, and I suppose for the listeners, the reason why I asked Tom to do that is because we have to ask more courageous, more direct, more uncomfortable questions in ways that are respectful. So, in that sense, thank you for the question, Tom. The I think there's a there's a complex answer to the question which gives us hints about the direction we might be able to go. So in part, I think we have to take a big step back and zoom out to um, two things. What does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be in business? And when I say in business, I mean in profit-making organisations. So they're two lenses which often, you know, safety professionals don't kind of zoom out to look at. So one is that, I think there's a complicated kind of sociology and psychology associated with, um, you know, finding uh, someone to blame. You know, we've burned witches at the stake. Uh, we we love when something significant goes wrong to, to be able to point the finger at someone. Um, you know, I'm reading a book at the moment called The Potato Factory, which is about very famous uh, criminals who ended up getting sent from the England in the 1800s to um, the penal colonies in Australia. And they just love punishment now um it seems like that is a an inherent part of human nature and i'm not a sociologist or a psychologist but i'm certainly you know learning in this area and and so what where i've landed on that is that it seems to be kind of inherently human Um, but the question that we've then got to ask is is it helpful is it helpful for us so when we were in a village and you had someone who fell asleep on watch when they were meant to be warning the rest of the village that there was a saber-toothed tiger coming. Um, If they kept falling asleep doing that, they were putting the whole village at risk, which means then that they would potentially be kicked out of the village. Um, Now, that's a survival mechanism. Now, we don't really live in those conditions anymore. So in many ways, the things that helped us survive many thousands of years ago are actually problematic in our modern-day society. So I think that's one part of it. We have to wrestle with this idea that our our desire to blame, to ask the question of who, to to put it to bed by pointing a finger, I think is inherently human, but it's just not helpful. And there are are ways, there are lots of scholars who've looked at things like um, restorative justice um, or just culture and things like that, that gives us insights into the ways that we can go about rethinking it. Um, But it's very, very difficult. The, The second part is, Um, I think the economic context here, which is that we've all been duped 
that um, that if you if you have a left leaning economic stance, that that's communism, and communism, most people have said, is a dangerous um, and unfair thing to impose on people as a form of government or philosophy of living, yeah. um, and and I don't know that many people would disagree with that. The problem is, is that on the right hand side, um, which is capitalism, uh, neoliberal capitalism, we don't give that a label. Um, some people do, but but we don't really talk about that as a thing. And yet that's what we live and breathe and work in every single day, which is this profit, profit, profit at all costs context of businesses. Quarterly results, delivery to the shareholders is the most important thing, accountability to the market, uh, the abuse of resources from an environmental or from a human point of view. So we talk a different game about safety and, and environmental protection and whatnot. But when the context is continue to extract and to exploit, which is what um, what, what um, the current economic system expects of organisations, then that starts to, I think, make sense for the way that certain people behave, in particular senior leaders and, um, and the way that resources are allocated. So I know that's a very long and probably non-specific answer for you, Tom, but I think that's a couple of nuggets that at least I've been grappling with that I think um, would... Uh, would, would help people in in um, sharing your frustration. Yeah, yeah, I can understand it. All right, um, we are getting close to time. So I'll ask just one or two very quick questions, which may not give short answers, but we'll ask them in here. I'll try. Um, what's the hardest or most difficult safety conversation you've ever had to have? Uh, the hardest, most difficult safety conversation was not about anything that was particularly like high risk or, or you know, uh, fatality related or anything like that, which, I mean, th th they should be difficult or hard conversations. But it was actually with someone who I absolutely despised. So um, as, a, as a health and safety advisor, um, we worked in a, um, in a functional service delivery model, which means that we didn't work for operations, but we were expected to work with operations and there was this um there was this general manager in operations who was a horrible human being like and and created a, a toxic workplace of um of disrespect and um and and a real system that that you know trod all over the people around them and smart intelligent kind people around them and it was just horrible horrible person and so the most difficult conversation i had was um, when I just realised how much fear I had in having to deal with this, what I thought was a vile human being, when I reframed it and I said, you know what, this person is a human being, let's just pause all of the other adjectives that I might use to describe them, I was able to overcome that um, and actually build a relationship with this person, discovering that they probably weren't as bad as I thought, but certainly I became more effective as a person interacting with them uh, because I I uh, treated them like a human, even though they were pretty despicable in many ways. Good. All right, lucky last. Um, in your opinion, what's the biggest safety challenge Australia is currently facing? Oh, that's a good question. The biggest safety challenge Australia is currently facing. I, I would say, and again, so declaring a bias, um, I, I would I would say that it's, um, actually leveraging the um, insights and knowledge and intelligence of the workers, the people who do the work. I, I think I think that is the biggest challenge in Australia at the moment. It's probably not unique to Australia, 
But if we made one single change across the board, which is that we got better at engaging with the people who do the work and collaboratively designing and executing that work, man, things would get so much better. It would upset lots of things in the process, including safety professionals and safety management systems and the power systems around middle managers. Um, but yeah, I, I think that would be that would be amazing to be able to change that. Excellent. Andrew Barrett, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Thank the you. podcast and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. It's been great to be part of uh, what is a, a growing and, and very excellent podcast. So thanks, Tom. Excellent. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.